Hey everyone, it's Mike Wall. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today, we're responding to the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's Season 4, Episode 4, titled All Is Possible. Spoilers will follow, so please make sure you watch All Is Possible before listening to the rest of this podcast, because unfortunately, I must report, All Is Not Possible. You cannot go back in time and become unspoiled once you are. My response episodes always have three distinct segments, think, feel, and question. Let's start with think. The most interesting part of this episode for me was Tilly's adventure leading three Starfleet Academy cadets and Ensign Adira Tall on a training exercise. Today's exercise will be a typical survey mission. Lieutenant Callum will be taking us to Garion, which is an M-class desert moon orbiting Theta Helios. Uh, once there, we will carry out a full planetary analysis. So fun. I think it's fun. I mean, it's new worlds, new things. Like, hey, what's that? Is that a new life form? What? Amazing. Just before dropping out of warp, Tilly assigns the crew their duties. Okay, Ensign Tall, Magnetospheric. Cadet Haral, Geological. Cadet Sasha, Microbial. Cadet Gorev, Atmospheric. And when I heard these assignments, I smiled so hard because it brought a deep sense of recognition to my daily life as a planetary scientist. You see, exploring strange new worlds is an inherently interdisciplinary venture. No one person can understand a whole planet by themselves. It takes a team of specialists each with their own expertise in, say, a planet's interior dynamics, its surface geology, its biological activity, or its atmospheric processes to really draw the full picture. A planet is a big place, so it might be difficult to see how all of these different parts are connected, interwoven in the tapestry of a world. But they really are, they really are so intimately connected. Let me give you an example. A planet's magnetic field is driven by the motion of liquid iron in its core, thousands of kilometers beneath its surface. This magnetic field that the core generates surrounds the entire planet, protecting its atmosphere from being lost to space. Atmospheric retention is critical for enabling habitability, and thus what happens deep beneath the surface of a planet impacts its surface geology and life. But you can also draw this web of causality in reverse. Let's start with life and end at the core. Biology can impact a planet's atmosphere by breathing out gases, and those gases can influence the planet's greenhouse effect, which affects the planet's climate. The climate controls whether liquid water can be stable at the planet's surface, whether it can rain and carve valleys out of mountains, whether it can form rivers that wash sediment into deltas, 
and whether it can hydrate the planet's crust to allow plates to more easily subduct beneath one another. Plate tectonics. And plate tectonics is an important driver of heat loss from the planet's interior, and could play an important role in keeping that liquid iron core churning vigorously enough to generate a global magnetic field. So you see, it's all interconnected. To paraphrase a former advisor of mine, planets are hard, and rocky planets are the hardest of them all. As innovations in astronomy allow us to get better and better data about worlds outside of our solar system, the so-called exoplanets, we are seeing the formations of consortia that pull together researchers from different fields and different institutions to bring the full might of their combined expertise to bear. I'm a part of two such organizations. The first is the Virtual Planetary Laboratory, which I joined when I was a researcher at the University of Washington. This comprises over 75 researchers at 20 different institutions to understand planetary habitability and our search for biosignatures on distant worlds. The second is a newly formed consortium called Ether, which I joined when I started my new postdoctoral position at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Both of these groups include astronomers, atmospheric scientists, geologists, geophysicists, chemists, and biologists. One thing that I'm also learning here at Carnegie is the importance of adding data scientists to that mix. People who specialize in the collection, analysis, and interpretation of large datasets, no matter their provenance. Anyway, let's get back to the assignments that Tilly handed out to her crew. I love that she dished out such relevant topics to planetary exploration. Magnetospherics, geology, biology, and atmospherics because those are actually the disciplines that you'd want on your planetary survey team. You know, the writers could have easily gone <laughs> with something silly for this scene. Like, you study the rocks while you study the soil. You scan the sand and I've got these pebbles. <laughs> but no, they actually chose four diverse, but four highly relevant planetary science disciplines and I loved it. Especially because Star Trek has a long history of piling too much domain-specific expertise on single science officers. Like, when the Enterprise cruises around space, Spock somehow knows everything about astrophysics. And then, when they beam down to a planet, he's also suddenly like the foremost expert on alien plant biology. <laughs> <laughs> so, I appreciate this episode so much for just highlighting the fact that no one person can know everything about a planet, and that it takes a team of diverse skill sets working together to understand a strange new world. And now I must stress the words working together. When scientists don't talk to one another, 
when they don't share ideas freely. They're no better than those proverbial blind men touching different parts of an elephant and disagreeing on the ultimate nature of the beast. While Tilly's cadre of cadets seemed quite happy with their scientific assignments, they were much less enthused about working with each other. The episode All Is Possible had a clear theme to me. It was all about building trust and bridging differences. At the beginning of the episode, our trio of cadets assumed the worst of one another because of their varied backgrounds. During the shuttle's journey, Tilly tries to get the crew to introduce themselves to one another. So you guys have been at the Academy for a couple months now. You probably know each other pretty well at this point, huh? I'm not really. Academics keep us pretty busy. Well, this is a team-building exercise, so um, I'll start. Hello, I am Lieutenant Sylvia Tilly. I was born on Earth. I do remember my first training exercise. Um, I dropped my utility kit down a methane gas vent. <laughs> Who's next? Anyone else? But none of them were willing to play along. This struck me as odd, because fine, you don't like each other. But what do you have against Tilly, your superior officer? Luckily, Dr. Kovic explains it to us at the end of the episode. You know, when Discovery first arrived, no one here trusted you. It wasn't just that you were in a 930-year-old starship and had never heard of the burn. It was the way you carried yourselves, like you grew up in a world that believes anything is possible. Quite frankly, it, it stung. And it's exactly what this new generation of cadets needs as the Federation rebuilds. So it seems that the cadets were intimidated by Tilly, by her attitude that anything was possible, which so contrasted with their own experiences growing up estranged in a harsh post-burn galaxy. Seeing superior officers as approachable people can be difficult. I know. I really, really do. But it's a critical aspect of a functional team. The palpable awkwardness between Tilly and the cadets made me think, this shuttle could use a good Cushing. Here's what I mean. There's a think tank I'm familiar with called the Keck Institute for Space Studies, or KISS for short. KISS is jointly operated by Caltech and JPL and runs these fabulous week-long workshops where they bring together a diverse bunch of scientists of various expertise, where have we heard that before, to solve cutting-edge problems in space science. While I was a graduate student at Caltech, I helped propose and then participate in a KISS workshop about methane on Mars, basically trying to answer the questions of what it means that the Curiosity rover had sniffed this gas in Mars's atmosphere, and how we could tell if it was made by life or by one of those methane vents that Tilly dropped her utility kit into. Anyway, a lovely tradition of KISS workshops is Cushing. Every morning, the coordinator, Michelle Judd, would pick 
one of the most senior scientists in the group, to stand at the front of the room. And on the count of three, one, two, three, everyone would grab a cuddly toy and throw it as hard as they could at this poor researcher, who would prance around the front of the room trying to evade all of the fuzzies. At the end of the Cushing, we were all energized. But more importantly, we were all friends. You see, the point of the exercise is this. After you've thrown a cuddly toy with all your might at an absolute legend of, say, geobiology, what's left to stop you from asking that question that you've been afraid of asking all this time? I mean, you've already done something so embarrassing, so preposterous, so hysterical. Cushing really puts everyone on even ground. There's no such thing as a dumb question. There's no such thing as a dumb person. I don't care if you have a MacArthur Genius Grant or if you're a Starfleet officer who traveled from 900 years in the past, or if you're a Tellarite and Orion, or from Titan. We're all a team. We're all meant to be here. And we're ready to work together as equals. So yeah, I really thought that shuttle could have used some good old Cushing. Instead, they had to learn the lesson the hard way. Through trial by spider lightning and flesh-melting colonial organisms, this team figured it out. Eventually. Feel. At the end of this week's episode, Lieutenant Sylvia Tilly decides to leave the USS Discovery to take up a teaching post at Starfleet Academy. She realized that after getting promoted to lieutenant, she had very little intrinsic motivation to advance further in Starfleet. Getting my lieutenant pips was the worst day of my life. You know, I, I never could figure out how my mother became a diplomat. She was such a hard ass at home. No compromise. She had everything planned out. She had my whole life planned out. So when I told her that I wanted to join Starfleet instead of the diplomatic course, she... So I always thought that I was doing this for me. But then when I got the pips, all of a sudden, I realized, like, my mom is 900 years in the past. She's never going to see me wear them. And I started wondering if this is what I really wanted or if I just really wanted to be seen. You know, and that was humbling. But I think it could be a useful perspective for a teacher. For me, this was one of the most touching scenes in all of Star Trek Discovery. You see, on the surface, Star Trek seems like it's a show about looking for strange new things out there. But really, at its heart, it's about finding new things in here. Our personal discoveries are the most important discoveries that we can make in our lives. 
and Tilly discovering that what she really wants to do is to teach, to raise the next generation in the ways of Starfleet, greatly mirrors my own personal discovery that I love teaching too. But I'll admit, I wasn't prepared to see Tilly leave Discovery. I got to know Tilly as that cadet who always wanted to become captain. And I became a fan of that dream of hers, cheering her on with every promotion. I wanted her to reach captain so badly, and maybe she still will one day. Career paths needn't be linear. I love also how understanding Michael Burnham was of Tilly's personal discovery. Like any good mentor and superior officer, Burnham knows that Tilly's time on discovery has prepared her for any number of roles in this brave new future. Not just for leadership on a starship, walking in the footsteps of Burnham, Pike, and Giorgio. So if Tilly is not going to walk that path any longer, there is nothing I'd rather see her do than teach at Starfleet Academy. Those cadets are so damn lucky to have her. <laughs> I'd go back to school just so that I could be the first to sign up for Professor Tilly's course on mycelial network travel. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a lot more fun than Stamets' version of the course, that's for sure. Question. Another plotline of this week's Star Trek Discovery episode followed Book's therapy sessions with Dr. Culber. You know, I'm really glad that the writers chose to give Book some more to work on after last episode's events, because grief is a slow and winding process, and not everyone is going to get a magic mind meld that can cure them of everything. If that mind meld had alleviated Book's grief for good, his grief would have seemed too unrealistically easy to conquer, which was a criticism that I actually had of Detmer's PTSD story arc in Season 3. So, and I know this sounds weird, but I'm pleased that Book is continuing to struggle with his emotions over the loss of his homeworld. My question for the week, though, isn't about Book's journey. It's about Culber's. Well, guess I've got a lot to work out. What do I do with it? Well, when the Mandela's finished, it's wiped away. You do this yourself? Yeah. The things you need to wipe away. Sure. You want to talk about it? Someday. So my question is, what is Colbert hiding? What is it that Colbert wants to talk about, but is holding back for that someday. Here's my guess. This season, Dr. Culber has been so mentally strong for everyone on the Discovery. He's not just the ship's physician, he's also the ship's counselor during a time of great uncertainty, of crisis. 
Wouldn't it be great? Okay, again, not great, but you know what I mean. Wouldn't it be great if he was starting to suffer from burnout, paralleling the stories of so many of those in the medical professions during the COVID-19 pandemic today? showing us, the audience, the mental burden that these everyday heroes bear to keep us safe and healthy and alive. What do you think? Hit me up on Twitter. I'm at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is troubling Dr. Hugh Culber and where you think his story will lead him next. Okay, that's all for this week. Take care, enjoy episode 5 of season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. And until next time, see you out there.